You're listening to the e-commerce marketing show presented by Privy. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for listening to another episode of the e-commerce marketing show. I'm excited for today's episode because we're kind of shifting the angle of this show a little bit to talk more practically about how e-commerce brands have gone from, let's say, zero to that first million. Not like perfectly on that line, but I really want to unpack those lessons. And so a couple of weeks ago, I tweeted something out asking for anybody who has an interesting story here. And I'm excited because that's how Fred, that's how we got connected. And so I want you to say hello to our guest today. His name is Fred Parada and he's the CEO of Tortuga Backpacks. What's up, Fred? Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. You told me just before this that you stumbled and bumbled your way into the first million. <laughs> so where did this whole thing start for you? I know you guys have been in business for about a decade, but take us back. Yeah, that was kind of the nice way of saying it, I guess. Yeah, we started, uh, idea was in 2009. So in the last recession, my friend and I, now business partner, and I, we went on a trip to Europe, went backpacking for a couple of weeks. Plane tickets were very cheap. And we kind of experienced a problem with our luggage, kind of realized what most people carry, what was out there wasn't really ideal for this kind of like backpacking, taking trains, staying in hostels, those sort of trips. And we had both just read the four-hour work week. So we had a lot of time taking trains around, just like wandering around, walking all day. And we saw the problem, had an idea for the solution, had this book, the four-hour work week as our blueprint, like, okay, we just do what the book says. You know, we thought we could just come back, put all those things together, fame and fortune to follow, and it would be easy. Didn't quite work out that way. Like I told you, we kind of stumbled our way there, but it was enough to get us started and feel like we have a playbook. We can just do what this book says. That plus being naive was enough to make us jump right in. For people that haven't read the four hour work week, like what are the specific things that you learn from that book? Like I want to get into some of the actual tactics. Like how did you actually it's enough to read the book, but like, what are the steps you actually went in and put into play? Yeah. So the parts of the book we were following back then are probably a little bit outdated. I think some of the more philosophical stuff about maximizing your time is still good. But at the time we were looking at what he talked about in terms of like testing a product idea with AdWords. He had a lot about kind of how to find a supplier, how to white label a product and then start selling it under your name. That was the original plan. Like, We'll use Alibaba or whatever the websites were at the time. We'll find a backpack. We'll create our own logo. We'll throw that on. And then you know we put it on the website. We automate the business and away we go. It didn't work like that for us. We couldn't find a bag to white label. There wasn't one that sort of worked how we wanted. So that was enough to like get us started. But then it turned out we couldn't follow that blueprint. So we ended up having to design our own product, find a supplier on our own. And this is where it came to the kind of stumbling and bubbling where we got a design pretty quickly. We found a designer on Upwork or Elance, whatever it was at the time. We got that kind of specked out, but then we had no contacts at factories. Neither of us had ever made a product of any kind before. So that's kind of where it came to trial and error. And it was still pretty early when there wasn't like 
Now there are more people writing about that stuff. There's more resources out there to connect you to a factory, middleman, stuff like that, that either didn't exist at the time or we had no idea where it was or, or how to tap into it. So that's all the stuff we sort of did through trial and error. And of course, that makes it take longer, but reinforces the lessons when you have to figure them all out for yourself. Can you go back to the initial like AdWords test? I'm just interested to know like what you actually learned from that. How did you set it up? Not much is probably the answer. So as we were starting the company, I actually used to work at Google running ad campaigns for clients. And then as we were trying to get the company going a few years later, I started doing that and Facebook ads freelance. So I knew what I'm doing there. I can figure out the keywords, travel backpack, carry on backpack. We'll drive traffic to the site. It'll all be automated, easy peasy. But turns out with our first product, we basically reached this point where we were working on and designing the product. And we either needed to do a production run or we were going to run out of money and never make anything. So we had to kind of produce what we had at that point, which was very ugly. (laughs) So our first product was ugly. So even as we're driving traffic to it, it's not converting. We're not converting in any kind of cost-effective way. So it turned out this whole system we thought we would have that would be kind of automated did not work, even though I, you know, I thought I knew my stuff and, and was good at it. So it was just like another assumption that we thought we had that actually didn't work. So even though in the book, Tim Ferriss tells you to like run these campaigns, kind of test the product, make sure there's demand, all that. We like, we did that and then just ignored the data because we believed in it and thought we could eventually do better or it was probably a bad decision, but it, it ended up working out. Was there a point in time when like, okay, early on, you, you finally got to get the right product or a product, right? Was there a point in time that like you started to see sales come in more repeatedly? Like when it wasn't, holy cow, like somebody actually bought a bag. Like, was there a point where this started to become a, a, a little bit of a more, you know, day by day predictable thing? Yes, but we had to redesign the product to get there. So the very first version, we did a really small run, but it was, like you said, you know, we're selling one a week, a couple a month, you know, every time the Shopify notification came in, it was, it was exciting and novel. It took a while for us to get to the point where they became annoying. We were getting to <laughs> Yeah, um, you that's, eventually. That's the point you want to hit. How do you know when you have product market fit? When you turn off the new customer notification emails. <laughs> It's a real thing. Back then, it was exciting to get each one, but that kind of wore off and you want to get to that point instead. So for us, it was redesigning the product. Like We knew we had... The first version was very ugly, but the people who did buy it were buying it because they had experienced that problem. They couldn't find a better solution. So you know they settled for what we had because it was still better than, than what they had experienced. So we got good reviews on that and we felt like we understood the problem with it You know, in terms of the aesthetics and could tweak something feature-wise to make it work better. But the people who did buy it really liked it. So we felt like there was enough signal there. So we hired a design agency, redesigned the bag with everything we learned, placed a bigger order. And that order, we pre-sold a little bit, like right before it came in as we were kind of shipping it. But even once we got it in stock, started selling briskly. And then we went through a couple orders where we would increase the size of the order. It would come in and we would sell out basically immediately. So we'd place an order twice as large and kind of spent a year where we'd have stuff in stock for a few days, it would sell out and then we'd be out of stock for like three months or whatever it took for the turnaround. So for us, it was like redesigning based on that feedback and some of it was like sort of gut belief and like, okay, here's what has to change about this and then it will be good. 
That's amazing because like, that's the essence of like building a business and, and marketing is like, is that feedback loop. And so it's almost like your Tim Ferriss AdWords approach, but almost at a bigger level where you actually, you grew your business because you had initial customers who kind of got your MVP V1 of your, of your product. And through them, like you actually learned what to go out and build and continue to double down on. That's a cool thread that I don't think we've talked about enough on this show. Like the importance of like, refining that product. And that is all related to marketing. I want to be data-driven and focused on results. And, you know, I worked doing Google stuff and ads, right? It's all very pretty straightforward, data-driven. You get all the, all the data on that stuff. But like, I don't know if it was just that I ignored anything that disagreed with like what we believe, but there was a little bit of like a core belief in like, this is a real product. This can be a business. There are some similar things out there where an outdoor company would have all their hiking packs and then one kind of travel bag. So our bet was basically like, we can take what is one skew for these companies and make a whole business around it. Even if that business is small, we still kind of believed it. We knew what we thought needed to change. And there was a little bit of, you know, uh, I hesitate to recommend that to people because I can get you into trouble with like, no, no, I'm sure. I know all the data disagrees with me, but I believe this thing. But that was the case for us. I don't know if that usually leads you in a good direction or not, but we believed enough in it and, and then, you know, got a handful of initial customers that reinforced it. But we knew at least we could keep going. So once you nailed that, you bring on the design agency, you have a better version of the product. Were there things that you did from a marketing perspective that led to that more repeatable sales process happening? Like, I'm assuming that it's not just like, even the product was good, but it's not like those first, however many customers just magically told all their friends and like all of a sudden things started happening. Like, what, what did you, what did you guys do behind the scenes from a marketing standpoint? Cause you, you do a lot today, but that obviously had to start somewhere. Yes. Starting out after we failed with AdWords and, and anything like that, we started blogging. This was kind of in the heyday of travel bloggers. So we just started writing and I started spending time learning SEO, both for the store and product pages and also for what to do with content marketing. We tried a bunch of stuff there, but because there were so many travel bloggers, it was pretty crowded to say like five things to do in Paris, that sort of content. So after trying a bunch of stuff, what actually started clicking and resonating with people was basically packing information like what to bring, how to pack it, what's a good packing list for, you know, Mexico, whatever, choose your destination. Stuff that I would never search for like even back then and now it feels weird to me that people would ask someone else what they should pack. I don't know. It's counterintuitive to me, but it was a very popular search people do trying to figure out what to bring. And that was the content that for us started to resonate. I think partially it's like, it can seem a little boring or unsexy or whatever. So maybe most travel bloggers weren't really spending a lot of time on it. And then also because it's just so closely tied to the product, it became easy for someone to like, search for a packing list, read the list, and then buy a bag. It's just like so tightly intertwined. So that started started clicking, started getting subscribers, started getting traffic in through SEO. And that's what started to build like an actual repeatable sales process for us. One thing that you do that's interesting is like you actually publish who your ideal customer is. <laughs> like you have this line that's like Tortuga customers are overwhelmingly millennials and generation X without children and have disposable income. Like, is there, is there a reason why you publish something so intentionally to say like, this is who our customer is that had to come from some learning. We do a lot of surveying. We used to be able to get better data from 
Facebook on that stuff for followers and that. But yeah, we do a lot of surveying just to kind of figure out what to build and what challenges people are facing and lets us kind of scale up beyond what you could do just with calls. So yeah, we do a lot of surveying and some of that we publish what we learn. We've Sometimes that's just to say like, hey, here's who you are, like, you know, turn the mirror around on the audience. And sometimes it's to connect the dots when we do a survey, kind of see, oh, this is a challenge people are having, this is a product they want, whatever, and then we make it, you know, let's say a year later. That way we can connect the dots to say, hey, we asked you about this kind of travel. You said you were having this problem. Here's what we made. Here's why it solves it. So that they'll let us do like a product teaser announcement, but more than just like, hey, we made something. Here's all the features. You know, you can kind of like show, even if that person didn't fill out that survey, they can see like, oh, this company is listening to their customers. Here's how they connect all this stuff and, you know, makes it resonate and gives us a way to talk about a new product in a way that's not just promotional or like adds to it a bit. We're happy to share that stuff. Sometimes people ask us like, why haven't you made this? Why don't you do that? And it also lets us say like, we asked, no one wanted that. Like, <laughs> I understand you do, but as a group, our customers haven't wanted that. Like yeah. you mentioned in there, a lot of our customers don't have kids. For a long time, it was an assumption of mine. A lot of people asked me for like a kid's bag. You know, most kids, when they travel, either the parent carries all their stuff or they've got like a little uh, backpack with, you know, some cartoon character, or whatever on it. It's like not great. So it was always in my head, it was always in the plan for like, all right, we make the adult's bag and then, you know, products, whatever. Uh, would be the kids bag. And then every time we surveyed, like people don't have kids, we ask them about that product, they're not interested. So we haven't made it yet. We'll probably get that one day. That survey is also probably gold for like marketing copy and, and website. Like you just must get so much back in that that you can use for everything. Yeah, great for for social proof. It's it's good. I've learned over time from working with uh, our industrial designer, um, and, and marketing people over time have kind of learned like what is good to have in a survey versus on a call or something like that. So we try to use surveys for like your easy demographic stuff, you know, age, income, whatever. That's always helpful to have. Um, but then we try to use it for like prompts and understanding problems. So like, you know, we might ask someone not, hey, what product do you want from us next? Um, but like, what are you having trouble packing? Or uh, we'll ask like, what kind of trips do you take where you don't carry your tortuga, you carry like a different product? Why do you bring that one? What's that other product? Um, and try to see like, okay, they, you know, maybe they're using a tortuga to solve this problem or do this job. What are the other jobs uh, that they have to be done? What are the other problems they have? Like some of that we won't get into, but sometimes we might see like, oh, they're, you know, using us for leisure travel, but have some other setup for business travel or whatever it may be. And we can kind of see like, what are the spots we're missing? And which of those do we think we could actually like do a good job of? So what's the actual like, uh, what, who, who does marketing at, at the company? And, and how has that kind of evolved if it's evolved at all in the, in the decade that you've, that you've grown from zero to now? Yeah. Uh, so early days was mostly me. Uh, now we have a few people on marketing team, have a marketing uh, director. She usually leads uh, the surveys and then it kind of depends for the surveys if they're some are a little bit more marketing driven um, and some are a little bit more product driven. So 
we typically have some collaboration between product and marketing on those, just depending on what the point of the of the survey is. Like we'll usually do every year, maybe every other year, we'll do kind of a general audience survey, demographics, psychographics, that sort of stuff. Um, and then sometimes we'll do more targeted ones. Like let's say we've had a product out for a while, maybe we want to refresh it. We'll ask like much more specific and product kind of questions like, do you use this feature? Would you rather it be X or Y? That kind of stuff that's a little bit more focused. What do you, what do you just tactically, because I know people will want to know, what do you actually uh, use for surveys? Uh, most recently, we've been using Typeform uh, just because you can build in some logic. It's kind of nice and, and easy to use. We've used Google Forms in the past. Um, I don't think it really matters. The, the bigger... The hardest part for us is going through all the open-ended responses, but that's going to be a problem no matter what. It's just a matter of trying to figure out how to read through them and then uh, looking for trends, which is a little trickier. I have a bunch of I a bunch of like random questions that I want to ask you. <laughs> so, uh, number one is the biggest thing that it's that 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 you know early like e-commerce brands struggle with is, is driving repeat purchases. And, and you guys sell backpacks, which is like, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't buy backpacks that often. How, how have you, how did you think about like driving repeat purchases or increasing AOV and, and kind of baking that into your, your business? Cause I'm, I'm assuming that has to be a way that you've, you know, something that you've thought about versus just like someone's going to buy a backpack from us now and they'll, they'll be done forever. Yeah, it's uh I mean, it's definitely not a strength of ours and is a challenge for that, for our kind of business the same way it is for like, you know, the Caspers and the mattress companies of the world, right? If we do a really good job of making a backpack, you don't need another one, which is kind of a, a problem for us or sure. Right. So um, what was, initially we were just kind of putting out products that, you know, we thought kind of made sense together or we had a big bag then we made a smaller bag. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, as tactical in regards to LTV. Um, over time, we've kind of learned what the buying habits are. So for us, it's usually someone comes to us and their first purchase is, uh, is like a luggage size backpack, like a bigger bag. Um, a lot of times I'll also buy some packing cubes to organize it. Then as a second or third purchase, they'll either buy, uh, like some of our smaller bags that are sort of accessories. So, um, we kind of observed this behavior over time and then tried to like maximize it. So for us, uh, you know, some brands, maybe you make a, your first purchase is like a smaller dollar amount and then you like scale up. We're more like, uh, if a guy's buying a suit, you know, you buy the suit, but then while you're there, they're like, how about some socks? How about a tie? Right. How about a shirt? How, so, did, how did you, how did you guys test you? Did you test your way into that? Like after that first backpack, did you come up with like a smaller, a, a smaller run of, of smaller products? Um, so we started with the big bag and then got into the accessories, uh, day pack, packing cubes, stuff people are asking for pretty much, um, that felt like necessary to also have. Um, and then as we kind of put this stuff out later, redesigned, added more products, we was mostly observing, like, what do people buy in the first purchase? What do they come back for later? Uh, what, uh, what skews are people's first purchases versus a second one? Um, and then we've just tried to like emphasize that behavior. So like on the, we now have a thing both on the product page and in our mini cart that basically says like, if you had a backpack, it'll say like, Hey, can I add packing cubes, get a discount on a bundle? 
Um, we play up some of that stuff in our email drip campaigns after a purchase. So, you know, if you buy a backpack, then uh, we'll send you some content, build that relationship. Hope you like your bag, test it out, uh, travel with it. And then we'll try to upsell you some of the accessories later on. So uh, we kind of like launched products that made sense, observed the behavior, and then tried to like play that up with how the website works and in our emails and stuff. Yeah, like I saw before, I just was on your site and and I got the like you know welcome offer, which is like get get the get the fifteen dollar value strap for free with your first order. Um, that that seems like it, that seems to be like a pretty good you know lead magnet to get somebody you know in in for their first purchase. Yeah, so the uh, that like free gift with purchase stuff is relatively new for us. So historically, our lead magnet was always like a packing list. We, we've experimented with a bunch of stuff, but just kind of a basic list seemed to work, uh, seemed to work the best. Um, but as you can imagine right now during coronavirus, people aren't traveling. So they don't really care about the packing list. So we wanted to try some stuff that was a little bit more uh, sales and purchase focused to see if we could use that to but help like the, the margins are, the margins are better on the, on the, uh, on the packing list though. Right. That's just like, you can create, you can just create that. That's like, Hey, we'll send you a PDF of this packing list. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yes. But the, uh, the stuff we're doing free gift with purchase were some accessories we tried that were like, they were okay. I don't think we'll reorder them. So basically it's like not dead stock, but stuff that's not a priority that, you know, they're ring covers and uh, we have a ring cover offer and a, a shoulder strap offer, which they cost us less than 10 bucks to make. So if I can spend that to convert someone into a $200 bag, like that math is pretty good too. It's not as good as a packing list, but it's not bad. Uh, so we've been trying that and it was really funny in AB testing to see like the packing list actually still drove more, uh, a better conversion rate and more, uh, more email addresses. But the uh, the free gift offer obviously just like swamps it uh, in terms of sales. Something about the psychology of getting the gift, probably. Yeah, and that that was the idea. We don't. We've always tried to stay away from like too many sales blanket. Like you know, the second you get to the website, ten percent off, and you like haven't even looked at a product yet, and I don't know, being too annoying with that stuff. So we've tried to like make valuable products like protect the pricing on those, uh, not train people to like wait for discounts and stuff and just like deliver a lot of value. So it's like the free gift with purchase is like, we're delivering extra value there as opposed to like training people with discounts. I mean, I don't so, know. That, so, I don't know if that psychology is actually true, but it seems, <laughs> it seems like it is. Right? I, it seems like it is. I think, I think you have to, I think you have to go one way or the other. Like it's weird to be in between. Um, this is kind of a similar, well, related offer, but how is, you guys have this like um, 30 days, you can buy a bag, you try it, ship it, you guys pay for shipping on both ends. Is that an offer that you've always had or do you add it later? Uh, it, the the positioning of it is new. So, you know, we've usually had free shipping, free returns, uh, you know, 30 day returns, just basic stuff like that. Um, what's new is positioning it as, a, a home try on. And the reason we did that was twofold. One, we've been thinking about it for a while because, you know, we're direct to consumer, we're online only. And, you know, backpack has a certain fit. You want it to feel, fit you well, feel comfortable if you're going to be carrying it around. Right. So that's like people have a little bit of hesitation there. And 
even if they like our stuff, maybe they feel better if they can go to REI and try on a bat, you know, and then they never try us out. So part of it was positioning. So people would feel like, okay, I can, I can buy this. I could try it out, make sure I like it, um, you know, before I uh, spend the money or make the decision or whatever. And then the other part was we basically expedited it because of coronavirus where one, people can't go to stores uh, to compare anyway. So thought it was an opportunity. And also, uh, especially early on before stuff reopened and everyone was just like, they're stuck at home. So we thought it was a good way to position like, hey, you don't know when your next trip's going to be, but here's what you can do now while you're stuck at home and have some free time. It's like, you can buy this bag, you can try it on, you know, pack it up, use your stuff, do it at home in the comfort of your home, take your time, all that, um, and sort of play up uh, what could be a weakness, you know, that you have to buy it, get it shipped, blah, blah, blah. Um, and try to turn that into like a strength a bit. How do you how do you guys think about um, content and, and and email? It seems to be like that's something that you're still super involved in. I'm just interested in like how you how you, where those fit in your marketing mix. Uh, yeah, so we still do uh, still do a lot of content, and then we use email uh, partially as like a channel to distribute that content. Um, so whether that's newsletters, which we've been doing more during uh, coronavirus, or uh, just our regular like drip campaigns. So when you sign up, whether it's uh, if you join the email list, whether just putting your email in because of a lead magnet or uh, making a purchase, whatever, uh, we have kind of like an extended sequence of emails that we send you with a lot of our best content and most popular stuff. So um, we've always, like I said before, with products we focus on building value. We try to do the same with content and like build up some trust um, that way. So someone buys something and then we can send them like, Hey, here's how to pack your bag so that it's as comfortable as possible. Here's uh, you know, some different ways you might pack this. Here's what works with it. Here's some, you know, uh, our favorite travel pants and jackets, whatever. Um, and send all this stuff. Then uh, hopefully people have that trust. So if we send them a few of those emails, they see like, we know what we're talking about. They trust us, et cetera. Then we make them an offer for an accessory. It, hopefully that feels like a no brainer for them to, to buy something. I always cite this, uh, uh, example, but one time I got an email from someone who was like, Oh, I've been reading your blog for a while and really loving it. And I was like, Oh, I wish they made a backpack. And then I realized that you did. So it's like, <laughs> that's like the, the perfect story that I want to happen, but it was also a reminder of like, oh, we like, we can't make that too subtle, you know. Like, yes, you want to build that value, have great content, but you also can't like be too subtle about also selling stuff. So we've tried to like learn that lesson and kind of integrate the two, the store and the blog over time. It's great advice because I think a lot of people don't they, they struggle to where to where to build up the content. Like, oh, if I'm only sending new, like I I, I found that like or at least in small samples, like people are either like all in and just go all newsletter and never have the ask or they go all ask and never find like the balance. And so it seems, it seems like you have a pretty good balance of like brand content that also drives demand. Yeah. We've had to feel it out over time. Like we used to, we experimented on the blog with having like a bigger kind of product banner, almost like an ad, you know, in posts and people just have that banner blindness and would, blow right by it, even though it was an, an ad for ourselves. It wasn't like an ad ad. Um, so we learned over time, like just an in, in-text link worked much better. And we tried to figure out how to like mention the products where it made sense within the context of the article and not like 
not shoehorn it in, but also make sure we include it. Um, and we, we would kind of see that in different posts. Like we'd see a post uh, doing well, driving revenue, and we would go and look. And a lot of times it'd be because we um, mentioned a product. Uh, it was just kind of more naturally woven in, or maybe we mentioned it higher up in the post. And those tend those tend to drive more traffic. So then we'll like look at other posts that are similar and see, oh, this one's not working as well because our product link is at the very end or, you know, it's kind of buried. So how, how did you actually, how did you actually see that the post was driving, was driving revenue? Was it just like linking to a product page and that, that was like the referral before that purchase? Uh, yes. And then we use um, Kiss metrics and I think there's some similar stuff in Google analytics, um, but, Kiss metrics and Google Analytics for uh, metrics like page value. I think I forget how Google does it. I think Kiss metrics, like let's say someone spends two hundred dollars and looked at they looked at like three pages and then they spend two hundred dollars. They'll attribute. Can't remember if they divide the amount by those pages or attribute the same to each one. But anyway, it's directional enough so you can see like all right, which pages uh, impact buying? Whether that's you know, for us, a lot of times someone lands on a blog post and then buys, um, usually within 30 days, let's say. Um, for us, it can also be educational pages. So our product page, and then also in our nav, we link to a few place, a few different posts where we explain like why we make products in China, what this material is all about, what are travel backpacks, these sort of informational things. And then we can see, okay, if someone reads, you know, let's say the, uh, something about the materials we use. Um, if someone reads that page, that's a very high value page. Then we know, okay, let's get this in front of people. Let's do a better job of getting it in front of everyone because we know it influences people to eventually buy. And then that way we aren't trying to inundate people with like uh, every post about every little thing. We can kind of see, okay, these ones actually influence uh, whether or not someone buys. So let's emphasize those. And you know, the rest we can bury or uh, get rid of. Okay, I want to wrap up and just ask you, uh, maybe the, the best way to do this is like, it's, it's personal advice. So I, 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 gotta, I have an e-commerce brand. We're doing like, you know, 30,000 in sales right now. I want to get to a million. What's a, what advice would you give me around, around marketing? So obviously there's product stuff you got to do, but what, what marketing advice would you give me looking back from what you learned now on my journey to that first million? Yeah, so I think I would say to figure out what of your marketing is working and can be scalable long-term. Like I'm all for the, uh, uh, you know, do things that don't scale kind of autos early on. And we tried, you know, a little bit of everything, some stuff that maybe would scale some the one early on. Um, it's okay to try a million things, be a little bit scattered, but uh, long-term uh, or at least that big space between 30 grand and like, you know, being a really big company, you're probably going to get there with, one, maybe two channels. So your job in those early days, uh, when you go from like, there's a business here to scaling, I think is about finding what that one or two channels are and figuring out how you can scale it, you know, 10, 100x, whatever. And like, that sounds like a lot for, for one channel, but uh, it's totally doable if everything you're doing is like contributing to that. So for us, like I said, it was content, but when we're emailing people, we're emailing them the content, right? Like we have this asset content in our or blog post in our case, and other channels are basically a way to get people to that content, to read it, uh, build up that trust in us, subscribe, then buy something. And like 
everything else you do should be contributing to whatever that primary channel is. I love it. Fred, that, that advice is good because it like boils the world of overwhelming marketing. Oh my God, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, email, direct mail, unboxing, reviews to like, if you just keep asking me every week that I do a check-in with you, have you found your one or two channels? What one or two channels are working? Like that's how you can start to chip away at this thing. Yeah, we're, we're all about, uh, even as we've grown, all about like, let's do less total stuff, but like do it way better, right? So instead of being mediocre at four channels, like can you be awesome at one? You will get much farther that way. And like, it's easy to fall into that trap of like, oh, we got to do, you know, all the social networks you just mentioned. But if you're on your way to a million, even, you know, you could probably get to 10 million by one or two channels. Like you don't have to be everything to everyone. Just pick your lane, ignore the rest for now and, uh, you know, see how far you can take that one. Love it. Fred, great advice. Thank you for doing this. Um, quick, quick plug for your stuff if you want before we wrap up. Sure. Yeah. Check us out. Uh, tortugabackpacks.com. T-O-R-T-U-G-A. Uh, at some point, we will all be able to travel again. Everyone will be dying to go somewhere. So uh, yeah, check us out. We make bags that are uh, carry-on size. They kind of pack and are organized like a suitcase, but they're comfortable like a backpack, like a hiking backpack. So um, yeah, if you're planning on doing any backpacking or uh, are excited to get out of the country when you can do so safely, check it out. Hey, it's Dave. Thanks for listening to another episode of the e-commerce marketing show. If you like the show, like the content, especially if you're in e-commerce, have a Shopify store and you're selling things online, Shopify, big commerce, whatever you're using out there to grow your business. I want you to go to privy.com slash join. That's one place to get all of the content that we're putting out here, including the podcast, masterclass Q&As with experts, website teardowns, email teardowns, and all of the content from our blog twice a week. Go check it out, privy.com slash join.